The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 20. This message was given during the evening service on November 20, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. We continue, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, and the fourth mark of suffering, Christian suffering, that Peter mentions in a book that is predominantly dealing with suffering. If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, what Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter is teaching us is joy, uh, evidences of salvation, and suffering. These are the type of things that go hand in hand, joy, suffering, and then the suffering and the joy are manifestations that we're true believers. Tonight we continue, possibly finish. I thought I'd finish the issue of mercy this morning in 1 Timothy 1, and I was mistaken. So I'm not going to say for sure that we'll finish tonight. We will be looking at some passages that are familiar ground for us, especially James chapter 1 when we're dealing with 1 Peter. Uh, James is considered the companion. Uh, many believe that James and 1 Peter are twins. There's so much about 1 Peter that's repeated and back and forth between James and 1 Peter that it is inevitable that when you teach 1 Peter, you will uh, constantly be referencing back to James, and I will be doing that again tonight. This series encompasses, this third series in 1 Peter encompasses verses 1, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9, and we're finishing up, hopefully, tonight, verse 6. Verse 6, the title that I've given for this portion of this passage, verse 6, is in your note sheet, Roman numeral 1, Christians are to be joyful despite trials. And underneath that, we looked at the issue of mega joy. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, that's mega joy, greatly rejoice. And we rejoice in this, which is our salvation, which he brought about and taught us in verses 3 to 5. Then the second half of verse 6 is letter B under Roman numeral 1. Christian joy is to operate on the battlefield of suffering. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And there are four marks of suffering that Peter slams into us and teaches us to be warned about. Uh, number one, Mark, is Christian suffering is temporary in your note sheet. That's what for a little while refers to. It refers to the temporary nature of this life. Mark number two is if necessary. Christian suffering is necessary for the Christian to grow in holiness. You can't grow unless you do the will of God. It's impossible. Uh, it's amazing how many Christians I've run into over the years that think you can grow being out of the will of God. It's, it's delusional. And one of the eight wills of God in the New Testament is that you would suffer and that I would suffer for the faith. Mark number three, uh, Christian suffering is distressing. And we finished that uh, last Sunday night and just started on the fourth mark. So let's fill it in again at the end of last Sunday night's sermon. I started mark number four, just touched on it. Mark number four, Christian trials have great variety. Great variety. Distressed by various trials. In your note sheet above the dotted line is what I did cover last Sunday night. Uh, the word various, the old word is manifold, or various, means all types. Uh, all types of trials and suffering await us. And then underneath that, as I mentioned last Sunday night, God is appointed for all types of suffering, has an appointment for us for all types of suffering and trials. And again, if the trials related to our walks with God, then so too the suffering and types of suffering will be related to our walks with God. And as I said last Sunday night, 
Uh, many Christians count the normal trials of their lives and fallen bodies as this type of various suffering, but that's not really correct. If he's talking about rejoicing in our salvation, he connects it directly in verse 6 to the fact that this suffering is related to your faith, and that's what we see also, as he points out in verse 7, the proof of your faith. So this is not, you had a flat tire. I have the hassle of two of my tires on the marquee, lose 20 pounds a day. And I'm too busy or too lazy, you choose whichever, to take it in to get it fixed. So I just keep cranking out those two tires and filling them up every morning when I uh, get ready to head out. That can happen to anybody. That's not a Christian trial. Uh, tires that go flat can happen to unbelievers as well. The context here is suffering for the faith. So if we started to eliminate all the hassles of life, just take all the troubles that you have in your life currently, whatever they may be, and eliminate them by saying this, could an unbeliever have this as well? Probably the 90 to 99% of all trials that Christians experience would not be the suffering, the various trials of verse 6. You know, if it is something a Christian and an unbeliever can go through as well, it's not suffering for the faith. And that's the context here. So take all the hassles that you're experiencing, things that are broken, relationships bad, job problems, tire problems, um, and just say to yourself, well, could an unbeliever have this as well? Could they face this type of hardship? If the answer is yes, then the various trials here is referring to your faith in verse 7. It's suffering for the faith. And this is... This is um, this is sober-mindedness here because, again, if we eliminate all the hardships of life that, are, that an unbeliever could do and there's little if nothing left concerning suffering, and that's one of the major wills of God, to suffer for the faith, then you can see the implication of that. If we're to suffer for the faith as believers, we're called to do this. We can't really find any suffering that is directly related to the faith in our lives, then we're out of God's will. And you can't grow if you're out of God's will. Let's continue with letter C in your note sheet. These various trials, they are many and hard. Many and hard. Herosmois there is the Greek word for trial. I had an unbeliever once, and I've told you this before, ask me, how are things going in your life, John? And I said, I've got trials and from all directions. And the person said, you're in court? Never heard that word. Unbelievers don't have any idea what trials mean. I said, no, it's trials means hardship. Oh, oh okay. It'll look like that. The goal of the unbeliever is to avoid hardship and suffering at all costs. We can't. It is necessary, verse 6 says, necessary that you are going to be grieved by various hardships, parasmas, trials. And as I mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday night, just in passing, you may want to write on that blank line to the right of trials that this refers to levels and time. Levels and time. Trials will always encompass levels and time. What do I mean by levels? To remind you, consider your life is on an elevator, and the harder the trial, the down further into the basement you're going in the elevator. 
And God may stop you on the second floor, that level of trial, may take you down to ground floor in a worse trial, may take you 100 feet underground in the elevator of your life to experience a horrific trial, different levels. Time refers to the fact that various amounts of time God determines are connected to various trials. He again determines this. Okay, so levels in time is what's encompassing the issue of trials in your life. Underneath that, Hebert, the great Greek scholar, has some things to say. He says, first of all, this is a plural issue. Notice it says trials, trials for the faith. As I just mentioned earlier, some Christians would have a hard time. If a gun was put to their head, give me one suffering you're having directly in regards to the faith. Many Christians wouldn't even be able to give one, but... Uh, here he says, you've been distressed by various trials. The more you live for Christ, the more you serve in the church and witness outside the church, you're going to get it. It doesn't matter what kind of society you're in. You're going to get it. And um, I, you know, my philosophy on my life is that I've just been minding my own business for 35 years, um, in a sense, just teaching the word phrase by phrase, verse by verse. And boy, has that gotten me in hot water. Who would have thought? Just going to teach Christians the Bible and does that make you enemies in the church, huh? So no matter what you do, you're going to get it. Now, Hebert talks about this, and he says this word has two meanings, so you want to write it down. The word perosmois actually has two meanings. It can refer to testings or temptations. It's used for both. Testings or temptations. It can refer to testings like suffering here. Trials for the faith, or can refer to being tempted to sin. The word is used in both contexts. The word itself, under number one, refers to testing metals to determine the nature or quality of a thing. You heat a metal up, the dross floats to the top, gets scraped off, you purify the metals. Uh, putting our lives in a, into a forge of trials is meant to purify us, to get us to renounce terrible, horrible sins in our lives more and more. So context determines whether this perosmois is referring to testings or temptations. So the testing, number two, can be good or bad. Good or bad. Dependent on the purpose of the one doing the testing. Trials are from God. God only does good. Um, temptations come from Satan. Satan only does bad. Uh, God does not tempt us. We know that from James 1. Turn over there. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is untempted, I'm being tempted by God. God actually doesn't have the ability to do that. There are things that God can't do. He can't sin. And if he tempted you, he'd be a sinner. So it says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He allows temptation, but he doesn't do it. He's not the source of temptation. Remember, temptation, same word, perasmos, same word, the word tempted you see repeatedly in the English in James 1.13 is the exact same word as trials we just saw in 1 Peter 1.6. So context determines that we would interpret perasmos as tempted in verse 13 because God does try us, but he doesn't tempt us. Okay. Now, he gives us one of the ways we are tempted. It's verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
So we tempt ourselves, and of course Satan is the other one that tempts us, so we can actually invite ourselves to sin. That's what a temptation is. So when God is doing the suffering, it's called trial. Write this under number two. When God does the suffering, it's called a trial. When Satan causes suffering, it's called a temptation. He wants to get you to sin. So while we're in James chapter 1, let's go back to earlier in the chapter. Same word again. Verse 2, James 1 verse 2, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Notice how uh, 1 Peter 1 6 says, Have mega joy while suffering trials. Here, James 1 2. See, these are parallel epistles dealing with the same concepts. 1 Peter 1 6 says, When you encounter various trials, various trials have mega joy. Here, same thing in verse 2. Consider all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, notice the last word, trial. That's perosmois. It's the same word used in verse 14 for temptation. And in verse 13 for temptation. Context determines whether it's a suffering from God or an invitation to evil from yourself or from Satan. Okay? So number three, godly trials is what is being referred to here in James 1 verse 2. You can write that down. James 1 verse 2. So back to number one again, just or number two in case you missed that. Let's review these points. Uh, the plurality, number one, Hebert says these are plural trials. You're going to have various uh, sufferings for the faith if you're walking with God. Number two, the testing can be good or bad, depending on the purpose of the one doing the testing. If it's God, it's suffering to help you grow. If it's temptation, it's you or Satan tempting you to backslide. Same word, context determines. It's a heating up. It's a metal in the forge. That's what the word trial means. So it's either your own lustful desires heating you up to sin, heating you up to sin, or it's a forgery from God heating you up with hardship to rejoice and to grow. That's number two. Number three, as I just said, godly trials are just that. They come from God. And that's verse 2 of James 1. God's trials are perosmois. Satanic temptations are perosmos. Same thing. And that's what we just saw in verses 12 to 14. Let's go back again to verse 12. Verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. Notice again, same Word in the Greek, verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. But it's the word, the same as the word temptation in verse 13. So the same Greek word is used in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14 repeatedly, but the English is switching back and forth depending on the context. Blessed is not the man who perseveres under temptation especially since we're the ones usually that tempt ourselves. We don't say, how blessed I am that I tempted myself. Such a blessing to tempt myself to sin. I tempted myself and I persevered. It's ridiculous. So this is referring to trial. And it's the Lord controlling and causing it. And then he switches the corner and don't say that God is tempting you to sin, however, in verse 13, as I just mentioned. 
And what we do is we carry ourselves away. We choose to be tempted in verse 14. We'll get back to verse 14 in a moment. So under godly trials, next is the good response is verse 12. It's a persevering response. You can write that next to good response at the bottom of your note sheet. Verse 12 then is a good response. Perseverance. Perseverance with what? What are we persevering? What are we enduring? We don't lose our faith. We continue to grow. We trust God. We continue to pray. It's with perseverance. We continue to witness. We continue to serve. I've seen too many Christians wrecked by churches and even some in our own church. I quit. Why? Because I was treated bad. These people treated me bad. I quit. It's not perseverance under trial. You're going to run into bad people in and out of the church, and it's going to be pretty much the same as far as bad treatment in the church as opposed to out of the church as apostasy continues to take over Bible-believing churches. Fake believers just pile up. So you have to assume when you get more and more apostates and fake believers in Bible-believing churches in the last days that you're going to get treated just as bad by professed believers in the church as outside the church. We're still to persevere. We resist sin and we continue to do God's will. That's the blessed man in verse 12. You're going to be under trial in and out of the church. That's a good response. The bad response is lust, verse 14. Why does James mention lust? I had somebody ask me this once. What's the deal with lust? Why is lust always being mentioned in these epistles? Because it's the foundation of your sin nature. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us, that your sin nature is marked by lust. John MacArthur doesn't believe you have a sin nature, by the way. So he has quite a time with that. <laughs> I was reading recently that uh, he said the sin nature was defeated and eliminated at conversion. You don't have an old sin nature. And that's interesting. So what's sinning then? That's my question. If I don't have a sin nature, then how am I sinning? He, he sticks to two words, and he will not unglue from those. It is your fallen humanness. Those are the two words he uses. My fallen humanness. Hmm. Where is that exactly? Because my fingers are fallen. Look at that. See, look at the wrinkles. So is he sinning? What's fallen humanness? He won't define it. He will not define that. He just says your sin nature is gone. When you read Ephesians 4, you realize that it's currently present, the old man. It's not gone. You sin with a sin nature in here. Okay? He's, marked, he's walking on a very fine line, John MacArthur, as it has been for 30 years. Very fine line right here. When he says fallen humanness, if he just moves a few, few inches to the right and says it's your body that's sinning, he's now a heretic. Okay? That's the old uh, Gnostic heresy that your bodies are sinful. So he walks the line and he says, we don't have a sin nature. It was killed. It's gone. It was annihilated at conversion. So how come I'm sinning? What's your fallen humanness? Well, what is that, fallen humanness? What is that? Define it. Flesh. Okay, now you're getting very close to this. Jumping into heresy here. You mean flesh body? No. John MacArthur would say your bodies aren't sinful. Well, what is that? It's your capacity to sin. Ding, ding, ding. That's a sin nature. Right? Oh, I see it. So in verse 13, where are you tempted? 
Verse 14, where are you tempted? Not your fallen humanists. It's your sin nature. Let's just remind ourselves of that. Go back to Ephesians 4. Sometime you should check out John MacArthur's exegesis of Ephesians 4, verse 22. It's very, 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 very interested what he does. Um, he's talking to believers, it's obviously. Um, verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17. Uh, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. So he's talking to believers. We can at least accept that context, right? Okay. So you get to verse 22. It says, in a reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Now he comes along and says, see, it's laid aside, it's gone. In conversion, it was laid aside. No, 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 it doesn't say laid aside. It says, you are laying aside, okay? It's not saying that it's gone. It's a statement of fact that you are to do this. And then it says it is being corrupted. Being corrupted is present tense. It is currently being corrupted. It wasn't corrupted. It's not gone. Okay, so we are to lay aside or renounce the old self which is currently being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. This is your sin nature. You can't get past the present passive participle, phthero, of being corrupted. It is currently. You're believers. You've been taught, verse 21. You're to be renewed in your mind, verse 23. This is ongoing. It's a battle. Galatians 5. Over there, Galatians 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. Talking to believers, verse 13, talking to believers, Galatians 5, 16. I say, walk by the Spirit continuously. This is a command. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Oh, so I could carry out the desire of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. And in the believer, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. So there's a war going on internally. Spirit against the flesh, flesh against the spirit. They're in opposition to one another. He, so one of the reasons MacArthur does not want to have us have a sin nature, he says, that means we're defeated. We have a, a dualistic thing going on in our minds. That's exactly right, we do. This is why we can praise God one minute and sin like the devil the next, because of verse 17. Sets its desire continuously. That's present tense. Now he'd say, well, that's your fallen humanness. No, that's my flesh. My flesh is my sin nature. Okay? It's the, it's the lust of the flesh, verse 16. Where does lust and desire reside in your sin nature, as we just saw in Ephesians 4? Let's go back to James 1. Is John MacArthur a heretic? No. He's very careful to keep that line drawn, but in counseling, he has a bear of a time. Well, my sin nature is gone? Yeah. You no longer have a sin nature. Well, what's sinning? Your fallen humanness? Could you define that for me? Well, that's just your humanness, your flesh. What do you mean by flesh? Humanness? See, he'll just keep rotating those terms around. Listen, I'm an expert on John MacArthur. I've read every book he's written, over 140 of them. He will not move those terms away. He keeps them right on that pew center, which I'm glad he does, but it doesn't help. Plain teaching of the Bible is you have a sin nature. It's no longer Lord, so it wasn't annihilated at conversion, as Romans 6 says. You haven't lost it. You're not free to sin. You can't do anything you want. It's not gone. So what happened is its lordship was removed at conversion, not its presence. 
Okay. So that's bad response there in your note sheet, the last part of the front side of the note sheet. Lustful response. And that is the foundation of your sin nature. Something inside us, in our minds, this is where sin occurs. My hand can't sin. You understand that. Even if I hate you, this isn't sinful. There's no part of my physical body that is sinful. It's fallen, but it's not sinful. Well, what if you gave me the finger? My sinful mind would order my finger to do that to you. This body is morally neutral, but it is fallen because of the fall of man in the garden. I don't ever want to say that my fallen humanness sins. It doesn't. My hand can't sin. From top to bottom, from my follicles of hair falling out to my green toenails, it's all fallen. But not one inch of this body can sin. It can be motivated to do bad things by the sinfulness of the mind. So if I swear, my mouth is not a sinner. Bad mouth, bad mouth. Lips, lips. You need to repent. I've had Christians tell me that. I was a Christian years ago down in the basement. He just was attending here, and he just started cursing up one side and down the other. It's just terrible. Stop that. We're in a church. You're a professed believer, I said to the guy. He goes, oh, where did that come from? Where did that come from? I don't know how I said that. His lips were sinful. I've had Christians tell me about how they hang around unbelievers all day who are cursing and cussing all day long. I can't help myself. I remember a Christian years ago said, I can't help but swear. I mean, around it all day. Oh, okay, so if, you're, if your unsaved co-workers were murdering you all the time, you couldn't help murder. And if they were stealing all the time, and if they were fornicating and committing adultery all the time, you'd have to do it too because, you know, you know company breeds this. It's not our fault. Astounding. Bad responses. If you give somebody the finger, you swear at somebody, you kick somebody, you attack somebody with your arm, your leg, your arms, your lips aren't sinful. Okay? Jesus Christ said, what goes into the man is nothing. When you eat it and swallow it, it's not sinful. It's what comes out of a man. Sinful words come from a sinful mind. Your mouth isn't sinful. How does your mouth repent? It's your mind that repents as you pray with your mouth to God. Christians are messed up on this. Look, they're victims. Say a bad thing to me. Oh, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. What do you mean you didn't mean it? It came out of your mouth. Yeah, but I don't know where that came from. What well, came from your sin nature? No, it came from my fallen humanness. <laughs> no, I don't buy any of that argument. Letter D. So in our context, going back to Philippians, or 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, our context, letter D on the back side, obviously the word here means the undeserved sufferings that come as two Christians. Undeserved sufferings. Come to Christians as a direct result of their faith in Christ. Not as a result of their sinning against God. 
In our context, obviously, then, 1 Peter 1.6, stressed by various trials, the word here means erasmus, which can mean temptation and elicitation to do evil in other contexts, but here it means the undeserved sufferings that come to Christians as a direct result of their faith in Christ, not as a result of their sinning against God. It is suffering from without. It is bad times. Directly attributed to your faith. We have to assume by its plurality in verse 6, trials, that more than one suffering will come our way. Back to Greek scholar Hebert, quote, It is good when the trial is applied to demonstrate the strength or noble character of the person tested. Let me say that again. It is good when the suffering or trial is applied by God to demonstrate the strength or noble character of the person tested. You can test yourself spiritually based on how you handle suffering. That's what he's saying. It is evil when the aim is to cause the object under testing to fail. So the word perasmas is referring to temptation. When the aim in the text, some texts like James 1, 13 and 14, it is evil. It is an evil temptation when the aim is to cause the object under testing to fail. As a solicitation to evil, it becomes a temptation, he says. But here in 1 Peter 1.6, perasmas has the first meaning. Yet because of the weakness of human nature, the second is not thereby excluded. The weakness of human nature, you could very well face a trial be tempted to sin by somebody else, but not from yourself. That's what he's saying. Okay, so let's create some scenarios here. You're at work, and your boss tells you that uh, the raise I promised you is not going to come through. You're going to have to stay at your current pay for another year because of the bad times. You get all upset with that. Is that... Suffering for the faith. No. Let's say you're at work and you witness to somebody, a co-worker, and your boss hears it and screams and swears at you and says, because you've been violating a company policy on witnessing your faith and proselytizing, you will not get a raise for at least a year. Same result of suffering. Is that Christian suffering, yes or no? Yes. You were witnessing, boss yelled at you, and now he says you're not going to get a raise for a year. That was one yes and like nine abstainers. I don't know. What? Let's not, let's not morph this, this uh, illustration to all its major legal and union-esque you know, determinations. I think you get the point, right? You know, let's, let's just say that uh, the employee asked some questions about the Bible, and then you were granted the right to respond. Okay. Well, you... Okay. Whoa. 
Let's go on to our final point for tonight, then I'm going to go to the casino right after this. Go into the casino. Anyone want to join me? I'm going to start wit I'm witnessing. I'm going to be witnessing at the casino. All right. Let's, what is the point of the fourth mark of suffering and trials? Let's finish this off, and then we start verse 7 next Sunday night. Isn't that exciting? Uh, God determines the variety of our suffering and trials. That's the point of this fourth mark. God determines the variety of our suffering and trials. doesn't ask your advice. He's just going to do it. Some of them won't make any sense. Most trials don't make sense, by the way, right? I've never had really bad suffering. I say, oh, this makes sense. Oh, this is very logical. No, uh-uh. So underneath that, God determines a variety of our suffering and trials. You should write down, you can't predict suffering. James 1 says that when you encounter various trials. Encounter means it slams into you. Like my car's out in the parking lot over there, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start filling up my tires. It takes about 10 minutes. So I'm going to stand there with a sign on my chest as 106 cars are going by late at night on a Sunday night. Um, I'm stranded here and I have lots of money on me. Feel free to rob me. Is that suffering for the faith? Well, my car's there because I'm preaching over here, right? I couldn't find a parking spot. So that one maybe you got to think about for a little bit. Or am I tempting God? Going back to Psalm 106. Am I tempting God by doing something that's foolish and expecting God to protect me? It's a good idea. But our point is very simple in 1 Peter 1.6. If you live for Christ, you're going to get it. The when, where, how, why, or what is up to God. We're in the dark on those things. We're not in the dark that we're going to get it. If you don't want to get it, don't live for Jesus Christ, and you'll get it after you're dead. So... We've learned two basic perspectives on joy then in your note sheet. And let's finish with this tonight. Two, two major perspectives. The previous one was perspective number one on joy. Joy is encouraged confidence in our precious salvation and protecting Savior. And now we finish the second perspective, the second half of verse 6. Joy is meant to be a partner, a partner with persevering trials. There's no point to having joy if life is good. You don't need it. That's why unbelievers can be very happy when things are going great. That's not joy. It's joy in the midst of suffering. As you can see, Roman numeral 2 for next Sunday night. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to look for opportunities to simply be faithful to your calling upon our lives. We don't look for suffering. We don't manufacture suffering. You are the one that produces it. We simply are called to be faithful. And then you will direct trials into our lives as you see fit. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.